The readings this evening are taken firstly from Deuteronomy, chapter 7, beginning at the first verse, and that can be found on page 186 of the Pew Bibles. It's page 186. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. And the second reading is taken from 1 Kings chapter 11. And that's on page 350, starting at the first verse. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely, as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives, who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the god of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem which I have chosen. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Alice. Just as we sit, let's bow our heads for a prayer. Words from an old hymn that we regularly sing. Thou and thou only the first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. 
Lord, we ask that as we look at this story of Solomon this evening, so we would see you to be our great treasure and desire you above all things. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, just before we launch into 1 Kings chapter 11, can I uh, draw your attention to a little book called Sacrifice by uh, Simon Gilbo. Those of you who are regulars at Burning Man might have heard Simon a, a few months ago. Um, Simon um, works for a mission agency in Burundi. He's been there for uh, getting on for 20 years. He's only in his early 40s. He went out as a young man, leaving a career in a bank in the city behind um, it's inspirational stuff. It's quite. Uh, it's it, it's a book with a punch. So it, it comes with um, a spiritual health warning. This book will challenge you, uh, and it's about putting God first. And uh, based on the passage in Romans chapter 12, where Paul urges his readers to offer their bodies as living sacrifices to God. Um, three pounds on the um, on the table, just the other side of that pillar there. Um, really heartily recommend it to you. Now, it is the stuff of tabloids that uh, we discover the next bright young thing, perhaps a new politician or president, a new sporting hero or a new face in, in the media, television, and we build them up, we hero-worship them, we lionize them, we place all our hopes on them, and then when they're right at the top, that's when we wait for the expose. So we have... The truth about JFK, and we hear about the affairs in the White House, or the real Paul Gascoigne, or what really happened with Jeremy Clarkson in that hotel. And we discover that our heroes actually have feet of clay. And here in 1 Kings chapter 11, we have the real Solomon, the truth about Solomon, and we have a window into Solomon's heart. The story is told of George Best, who was one of the greatest footballers probably ever, I was going to say of his generation, but uh, he was the archetypal playboy sportsman of the 1960s. And the hotel bellboy was delivering champagne to George Best's suite. And he found him entertaining a scantily clad Miss World. And the bed was covered with... George Best's winnings from the casino downstairs. And George Best used to love to recount how the bellboy said to him, so George, where did it all go wrong? But actually the seeds of his decline had already been sown. Quite a perceptive bellboy. And a once great footballer was already heading down the road towards alcoholism, debt, that would lead to prison, that would lead to liver disease, that would lead to a premature death. The real George Best. And here in 1 Kings 11, we have the real Solomon. You see, the previous chapters, we're sort of diving in here in the middle of the story, but the previous chapters in 1 Kings are full of Solomon's achievements. It begins with his request for wisdom as he uh, succeeds his father David on the throne. Uh, it continues with him building the temple, uh, culminating with the arrival of the Queen of Sheba in chapter 10, a sort of mountaintop experience as uh, she recognizes that God has placed Solomon in this great position as king. 
and the rest of chapter 10 deals with the splendor and diversity of Solomon's wealth. God had promised to Abraham that he'd give him many descendants. And we read in 1 Kings chapter 4 that the people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. That should ring a bell to a well-read Jew. God had promised Abraham that he would dwell with his people in the promised land. And we read in chapter 6 that the temple started to be built by Solomon, the place where God dwelt. So the exodus is complete. They finally arrived. Things promised back in Genesis chapter 12, if you like, have come to fulfillment here in the reign of Solomon. We've never had it so good, you can hear the statesman saying to his people. And boy, they did have it good under Solomon's reign. And then we come to chapter 11, the passage we're looking at this evening. And this chapter makes chapters 1 to 10 seem like a whitewash. Solomon's dark heart is exposed not to the tabloids, that would be today's tabloids, tomorrow's fish and chip paper. They they are exposed 3,000 years on in this book, and we're still reading about Solomon today this wise man's folly. So Solomon, where did it go all wrong? Where did it all go wrong? How could the man who asked God for wisdom and received wisdom go so horribly wrong? He had wealth, he had land, he had reputation, he had wisdom, he had women. But this last chapter on his life concludes as a disappointing failure. And from here on, Israel as a nation is in decline and the monarchy starts to fall into disrepute and it's long be- not long before the nation divides in two. Now last week Charles was talking about doing a sort of MOT for the church uh, and checking as God's people collectively are on our priorities. So we thought about how the, the disciples were devoted to the apostles' teaching and prayer and fellowship and the breaking of bread and all sorts of priorities for for us as a church, Um, I'd like to suggest this evening that this is a sort of MOT for the self, uh, that I examine my heart and ask, is my heart fully devoted to the Lord? Are there areas where I'm in danger of it all going horribly wrong? And what steps am I taking to guard my heart? So two points this evening. The main one is Solomon's drift, and then briefly at the end we'll look at God's response. So Solomon's drift, and after the great crescendo of chapter 10, where everything is absolutely marvellous at the end, we come to chapter 11, verse 1. King Solomon, however. It's all very, very wonderful and successful. It's all marvellously triumphant and wealthy. However, he loved Many foreign women. King David's last words to Solomon, his son, had been that he should not have his heart turned by marrying foreign women. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, God had specifically told the Israelites not to take many wives and not to marry foreigners whose hearts would be lying somewhere else. Now, no doubt there is a certain amount of political expediency in marrying people, as verse 1 tells us, uh, from uh, Egypt, Moab, 
uh, Ammon, Edom, Sidon, and Hittite country. No doubt Solomon would have seen himself as sort of securing political alliances like um, Henry VII marrying, was it Margaret of York? You know, the sort of Lancastrians marrying the Yorkists, that kind of thing. Uh, And first up, Solomon marries Pharaoh's daughter, having been specifically told, do not go back to Egypt, either emotionally or uh, spiritually or physically. Don't go back there. And yet, look at, um, that's exactly what he does. Verse 2, these wives were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them, Because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. 700 wives, 300 concubines, like 700 is not enough. Let's bring in another 300. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord. Is this not one of the big understatements of all scripture? Too right. His heart was not fully devoted. How could it be? Now, this law about not intermarrying with other nations is is not about discrimination. It's not kind of the UKIP vote here. It's not about racism. It's about protecting the loyalty of the heart. Because these marriages were not primarily about politics and forming alliances with dodgy neighbors. These marriages were about the heart. Look at the end of verse 2. Solomon held fast to them in love. God had specifically warned the Israelites not to intermarry, as we heard in that Deuteronomy reading, not to intermarry with other nations because they will surely turn your hearts after other gods. But that's exactly what Solomon did. He marries Pharaoh's daughter. He loves many foreign women, verse 1. He was a sex addict. Verse 2, he held fast to them in love. Verse 3, his wives led him astray. Verse 4, so his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord. Verse 5, he followed Ashtoreth, god of the Sidonians. Verse 7, he built a high place for Chemosh and Molech. Verse 8, he did the same for all his foreign wives. So that by the time we reach verse 9, we read his heart had turned away from the Lord. Now, there's a very clear message here about marriage. The relationship between a husband and wife is surely the closest and most intimate relationship in all human experience. So when Paul uh, describes the intimate relationship between Jesus Christ and the church in Ephesians chapter 5, he illustrates that intimate relationship by paralleling it with marriage. That's why marriage to someone who isn't a Christian is the single greatest reason why Christians give up on their faith. Because the Christian's heart will surely be tempted to turn to other gods. 
A spiritual partnership must be the most important thing in a marriage. Much more important than sexual attraction or romantic affection or intellectual compatibility. I'm so grateful to my dad who would occasionally kind of um, lay the law down as dads do who said to me when I was still um, a boy, a, a teenager, he said, Tim, if you're going to get married, marry a girl who loves Jesus more than she loves you. And I'm so grateful I did. And some years after his death, I still bless him for that advice. Can I pass that on to you? If you're going to get married, marry someone who loves Jesus more than they love you. And if you're married, work at that spiritual dimension of your marriage. Pray together. Encourage each other. Read together. Solomon should have led his wife to the one true God. Instead, he let his wives lead him astray. Now, the application here, I think, is wider than just marriage, because this really is first commandment stuff. Loving God and not having any other gods before him. And perhaps this is the moment to be honest with ourselves and ask, is my heart divided in any way? Have I married myself to a job or a habit? or a hobby, or a wage, or a house, or a dream? And might this thing be something that might just steal my heart away from the one true God? It's interesting to note, I think there are three, three Ps that stole Solomon's heart and turned his head. And I wonder if they might be three Ps that influence us too. There's the P of pleasure, 700 wives. Oh, and let's bung in another 300 concubines as well. His heart was not fully devoted. Pleasure could come in all sorts of forms. And it'll probably tempt us all in different ways. Second P is prosperity. Solomon had unbelievable riches. And they can sometimes divide our hearts and be a distraction and influence our priorities. It's interesting, the Bible never actually condemns riches. It just warns us that these things can play havoc with our hearts. And the rich man was not sent, uh, told to go and give all his possessions and give them to the poor because Jesus thought it was wrong that he was rich, but he could see the hold that those riches had on his heart. Prosperity. And the third P is prestige. Solomon, of course, was the great king. He had great power and a great reputation, known as the wisest man in all the earth. It must be a danger when you have that kind of reputation of thinking, well, I can do whatever I want. Three Ps. And just notice two further things about Solomon's drift. Notice that Solomon is not condemned for his extravagant lifestyle. 
he's not actually condemned for his sexual appetite or his sensual indulgence, even if to our minds it might seem a tad excessive. Solomon is condemned for ignoring God's law, and especially for ignoring God's law about marriage and pluralism. He'd stopped listening to God's word, and he'd started listening to his heart. And that's when the erosion began. That's when the drift started. Now, we live in a world that surely encourages us to, quotes, follow your heart. We live in a world of self-realization and self-actualization. People will say things like, don't let anyone tell you what to do. Just follow your heart. Follow your dreams. So I, got, I googled uh, follow, follow your heart, and I just got a complete sort of stream of consciousness. And here's a lyric from Madonna. So please don't think I'm right up there with lyrics from her album in 1998, but this is what it says. Isn't everyone just traveling down their own road, watching the signs as they go? I think I'll follow my heart. It's a very good place to start. Now, you can imagine King Solomon hearing a speaker at his school assembly in Jerusalem, and the inspirational speaker says things like, well, stop thinking so much and go where your heart takes you. Follow your dreams. And you can imagine Mrs. Solomon giving Solomon a, a fridge magnet that says, there is no set path, just follow your heart. This postmodern view that says, I am the captain of my soul, I'll do what I want, I'll go where I'll go, and no one else can tell me what to do, it's not a new idea at all. It goes right back to the days of Solomon and beyond. Follow your heart. You see, it sounds great, it sounds appealing, until we remind ourselves of the words of Jeremiah. The human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt, he says. Or we remind ourselves of the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 7. For from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, and so on. Solomon's problem was that he allowed himself to be led by his heart and not by God. And the second thing to notice about Solomon's drift was that it was gradual. Early in his reign, Solomon had married Pharaoh's daughter, and he gradually accumulated all these wives until we see in verse 4, as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. This was not a sudden catastrophic collapse like David and Bathsheba, which led to the conviction of sin and guilt and confession and ultimately restoration. Not so here with Solomon. Solomon's faith is gradually eroded. He didn't reject his faith. He just gradually drifted. He'd have still been in the temple week by week. But he started to compromise. And then it became fortnight by fortnight and then once a month. The key verse, I think, in this whole passage is verse 4, where we read, His heart was not fully devoted. Not fully devoted to the Lord his God. I'm sure he was partially devoted. He would have made sacrifices and done his duty, but his head was turned. He was only half-hearted. 
And we need to remind ourselves that the Hebrew idea of the heart is very different to ours. We distinguish between decisions of the head and the heart. But for the Hebrews, the heart meant the whole person. Will, attributes, thoughts, love. And God was no longer Solomon's first and only love. And notice that Solomon didn't just permit idol worship. He participated in it, verse 5. He followed Ashtoreth and Molech. Ashtoreth was a fertility god. And Molech and Chemosh, who verse 7 describe as the detestable god of gods of the Moab and Ammonites, those gods encouraged child sacrifice advocating killing babies in an act of worship to God. It is detestable. So no wonder verse 6 says that Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And that phrase keeps recurring throughout 1 Kings following Solomon. And there's an added poignancy for Solomon in verse 9, because God became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. He'd actually appeared to Solomon. And Solomon still let his heart drift. It's a great warning here, I think, in Solomon's story. We can have great parents. He had David, a man after God's own heart. We can have great privileges. We can do great things for God, like build temples. We can have great spiritual experiences like Solomon meeting with God and it still ends in disaster as little by little our faith is gradually eroded as our hearts are allowed to be led astray. And I think there's a lesson especially for us as we go on in the Christian life. Don't rely on past successes or past experiences. Don't rely on Christian background. Don't rely on the fact that 20 years ago you did some great thing for God. Don't give in to the temptation to take a back seat. Say, well, I've, I've done my bit, you know, I've, whatever it is. I've, I've led on camps or I've taught in the Sunday school for a good number of years. But I think it's time to let other people have their go. Let's keep going. Let's remain fully devoted. Verse 6, let's follow the Lord completely. Let's look to take on new challenges. Let's look for new responsibilities. Jimmy Carter, the former United States president, left the Oval Office in 1981. 34 years on, now aged 90, Jimmy Carter is still teaching Sunday school in his church in his hometown of Plains, Georgia. He's chairman of something called the World Justice Project, and it's a role that still involves this old man in much international travel. But 36 weeks a year, Jimmy Carter is back at Maranatha Baptist Church, Plains, Georgia, teaching Sunday school. He often flies home late on a Saturday night so that he can be there for half past eight on Sunday morning. If you're tempted to let things drift, remember Jimmy Carter. He's an example to follow. And if you're tempted to drift, remember the example of Solomon. He's a warning to avoid. 
And when we're tempted to take a back seat and just ease off a little, perhaps there's great pressure at work, new demands on us. Perhaps we're tempted to compromise. Remember the gradual erosion, the little by little erosion of Solomon's heart. But that may not be enough to keep our hearts fully devoted, just to have this kind of warning. So in conclusion, just notice God's response to all this. Just two quick things about God's response. First, it's no surprise that God acts in judgment over Solomon. Verse 11, the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude and you've not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. God had made a covenant with his people. Solomon had broken it. So God acts in judgment. It's the same message we've been hearing week by week in Isaiah these last few Sundays. And we need to take the Bible's warnings about judgment seriously. You cannot preach about grace and mercy if you don't understand God's judgment. But secondly, it's no surprise also that God acts in mercy as well. Verses 12 and 13. Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So having just seen God's judgment, we see here God's wonderful grace and mercy. I will not do it during your lifetime. Not yet. I will not tear the whole kingdom from him. Not entirely. And verse 39, later on in the chapter, I will humble David's servants because of this, but not forever. So God suspends his judgment on Solomon. So we may ask, how can God suspend his judgment on Solomon and still be just? Well, look at verse 7. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. The reason the Israelites hated the Moabites was because they believed in sacrificing children. Now, I'm just guessing here, but if you've got 700 wives and 300 concubines, you don't know what all your children are up to, surely. And I'm just wondering if one of Solomon's own children might have been sacrificed on an altar to Chemosh. He had so many, I don't know, I'm just guessing. But we do know that there was another descendant of Solomon who was sacrificed on a hill outside Jerusalem. That descendant who paid for the price for all our sin, who paid for every drifting heart here tonight, so that your heart and my heart can be kept in the grace of God. I imagine there aren't many here tonight who will be tempted to join the Richard Dawkins Brigade and throw in the towel completely. Though, you never know, maybe one or two will be tempted that way. 
But 1 Kings 11 teaches us that even the most successful Christians are prone to wander, to drift, to go off the boil. All of us, in one way or another, will be tempted not to be fully devoted to the Lord. We're all being tempted all the time not to have any other gods but God. At the beginning of his reign, we read that Solomon loved the Lord. By the end, we read that Solomon loved many foreign women. And 3,000 years on, he stands as a warning to us to hold fast to the Lord, not to give our hearts to other idols, not to drift inch by inch by inch. So, brothers and sisters, can I encourage you, encourage us all, let us hold fast to the Lord. Let us be fully devoted to him. Let's learn the lesson of Solomon and let's serve him only. Let's pray.